0: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast, your home for deer hunting news stories and strategies. And
1: now, your host, Mark Kenyon.
2: Welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast. I'm your host, Mark Kenyon, and this is episode number 119. Today in on the show, I'm joined by outdoor writer Tony Hansen, and we're getting into the details of how he approaches the challenge of bow hunting mature bucks in areas of heavy hunting pressure. Alright, welcome to the Wired to Hunt podcast brought to you by Sitka Gear. And As I just mentioned, today I'm joined by my friend Tony Hansen. And Tony is a guy I imagine many of you are familiar with. He's been a mainstay in the whitetail media world for a long time now, having been involved with Outdoor Life, Uh, Michigan's MUCC Magazine, Realtree's website, his web show Antler Geeks, uh, even Midwest Whitetail way back in the day. And he's involved in some interesting new things too that I'll let him share with you in a minute. But the point is, Tony's a guy who knows how to talk about whitetails and do it in a way that I think people can learn from and understand. And of course, he also knows how to kill whitetails too, especially in states like where he and I both live, Michigan, where hunting pressure is about as bad as it gets. So, that said, in a minute here we're going to dive into detail on a whole slew of different topics related to this one specific challenge. bow hunting mature bucks in the toughest and heaviest hunted areas of the country. And I think you're all going to be able to take something away from this conversation. That said, before we get to that, we need to thank our partners at Sika Gear for their long-running support of this podcast and continuing with our brief break from our Sitka story segments I want to give you another quick reminder about Sitka's diverge photo contest that launched earlier this month that being September 2016 now for this contest Sitka is looking for the most unique raw emotion conveying and uncommon hunting images you can put together and they'll be rewarding the best photo takers with some incredible prizes including Sitka gear hats clothing GoPros, the opportunity of have your photos published in print and even an all-expenses-paid trip to one of my favorite places in the world, Bozeman, Montana. So, if you'd like to learn more about the Diverge contest or if you're ready to submit your photos, visit SitkaGear.com slash Diverge. And with all that said, let's get right into the interview with Tony Hansen. All right, with us on the line now is Tony Hansen. Welcome to the show, Tony hey how's it going pretty good i uh i'm anxiously counting down the next couple of days until i actually start my whitetail season but uh, how about you when do you get kicked off
0: um i haven't decided officially yet i have a place in ohio that i can hunt and uh i'm tentatively planning to go down there for that opening weekend but um, i gotta kind of wait and see what the trail cameras are telling me and if it's uh if it's worth headed down there, or if I need to wait a little
2: while. Yeah, i I always tell myself I want to wait a little bit longer to start down there in Ohio, but it's it's tough not to want to get down there, given the fact that, uh, as you know, there's a little more to be excited about sometimes compared to what we have here at home in Michigan. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's, for it's sure. a great state, that's for sure. So before we before we really dive into this and what I want to talk with you about, Tony, in particular, was about some of your experiences here in Michigan and other states like this. But I guess. Before we go down that road, could you tell us a little bit about your background? You've done a lot of interesting things in the hunting world over the last i don't know ten years or more probably mm-hmm. um and now you're you're still doing some great stuff can you just kind of fill us in on on what your background is and what you're doing today?
0: yeah sure um so I've been in you know the the hunting media for quite a while, probably about know oh, twenty years or so and I've Done a, a number of different things in that, but um, uh, most recently, you know, I, I'm an editor with Outdoor Life magazine. Um, just started that quite recently. I've contributed to Outdoor Life for uh, probably eight or nine years, but um, was just brought on, you know, as an actual editor here recently, and I'm also a land specialist with uh, Whitetail Properties, so i um, looking at helping people find the type of ground you need to hunt here in Michigan to kill those big deer.
2: Easier said than done, isn't it?
0: Yeah, it's easy to it's it's easy to, to find the ground. It's the hard part is figuring out that just because you have great ground doesn't mean um, you're going to have the type of deer that you're looking for. There's a lot of steps involved in Michigan.
2: Yeah, that's the truth. So just before we got on the air to do this, I was looking through some of our archives from Wired Hunt podcasts, and mm-hmm. I saw that Will Brantley was in the podcast earlier this year. And I got to thinking, yep. you and Will have had this strangely parallel career with you both working, you know, with the Real Trees website and everything like that, and contributing to him with Field and Stream, you with outdoor life, and now you're both editors at the two magazines. Who's the who yep. do you think's the better deer hunter? You or Will?
0: Okay, so I'm the better deer hunter, he's the better deer killer. <laughs> so he he uh he's from Kentucky and if you know guys who are from kentucky there's really nothing more that needs to be said other than they like to shoot things (laughs) so um you know i think i'm probably a better deer hunter just because i have to be um Mm -hmm. but will um he's he's probably the best all-around hunter that i've ever encountered and uh he and i are really good friends he's always calling me his uh Yankee brother from another mother, <laughs> yep. and uh, he, he knows a whole lot about a whole lot of stuff, but when it comes to deer, um, he doesn't like to hold out very well, and he's always getting mad at himself every year for getting the itchy trigger finger and shooting something that looked big at the time, and then it maybe wasn't as big as he wanted, but he can definitely hold his own um, hunting anything. So yeah, Yeah, <laughs>
2: well, it definitely seems like you both have interesting and unique perspectives on a lot of things but you're doing a lot of the same things to have success and that's that's something i've respected about both of you is that uh, you're both great at getting the job done but almost just as importantly you're able to communicate about it in a way that your everyday average people can understand and learn from Uh, so so you know I've said it before, but I've really enjoyed your work, your writing, everything you've done for a long time will too. So I'm excited to to kind of try to pick your brain apart because you you share a lot of interesting stuff in your articles, but lots of times I'm interested in like the nuance and I I found myself reading something and I wanna ask you a question, but I know you're busy, I don't wanna bug you. (laughs) So today, kind of my high level thought was that we could dive into a few examples of how you've had success hunting in states like you know our home state here in Michigan and try to, you know, parse mm-hmm. out exactly what you're doing differently than a lot of people because, you know, as you know just as well as me, most people in areas like this struggle to kill mature bucks, struggle to even see mature yeah. bucks. So, you know, yeah. those people that are able to do that consistently, that's something that is just so unique, and oftentimes people are going about it in very different ways. There's usually a few core different things that we kind of do consistently, but then everyone, at least that I talk to, seems to have that unique angle on exactly how they implement that. So with that said, I remember a few years back, Tony, the story of this buck you killed. I think it was called Kickers. Correct me if I'm wrong, but back in 2013, yep. you killed yep. really a, a world-class buck for this state. In an area yep. that is really heavily pressured. If I remember right, yep. I think I saw that you yep. killed that buck in an area where there were like four or five different gun hunting shacks surrounding you that, you that you could see at one time. So yeah, yeah. If that's not a pressured buck and pressured land, I don't know what is. So I guess could you kick us off by just telling us the story of that hunt and that buck, and then from there we can kind of dive into some specific tactics.
0: Yeah, sure. So the the property that I killed that deer on is 120 acres. And 90 acres of that is tillable cropland. So you're dealing with 30 acres of cover. Um, It's in a normal section for Michigan other than it's, it's one mile wide. So it's a mile wide North South. It's two miles wide East West. So that's the only variation really from any other section in the state um, is that it's doesn't, it doesn't have a road at that first mile. So it goes two miles. It's, Typical southern Michigan farm ground. Um, You know, nobody else can hunt the 120 acres I hunt except the landowner, um, and he doesn't hunt very much. The other pieces are hunted, you know, as hard and actually harder over the years as they've kind of figured out that either they figured out there's good deer on the piece I'm hunting or they figured out that I'm hunting it and they want to get in there. So every year it's gotten a little bit more pressured than previously but they hunt right on the property line there's gun shacks on the property line on three of four sides the fourth side is a road so they can't have a gun shack there but um, I've hunted it one time on the opening day of shotgun season and um, I saw eight different hunters that opening day Um, they were all four of them were sitting within you know I could see them physically the entire time. The other four came after they started shooting, um, and were like quote unquote tracking deer. Two of them were within 10 yards of the property line and had trim shooting lanes into the property line. Jeez. So they were shooting onto the property, couldn't shoot any other direction. So, um, it's not a, it's a special place because of how I hunt it, but it's not a special place. You know, it's not like it's a thousand acres. Nobody can hunt. Um, it's no different than any place else. The only difference is I have a sanctuary on there that I don't go into. So I first got permission to hunt the property probably six years ago. And the first thing I did was realize, okay, there's this really thick area. It's kind of a, it's, it's like a marsh that's being reclaimed is the way I would you know describe it. Sometimes it's pretty wet and boggy but most of the time it's just kind of dry with some mucky spots and there's tall grass and um brushy scrubby trees in there well you can't you can't really hunt it because you can't get in it so that's just off limits that's about probably 10 acres and um we never ever go in there Um, and that's where all the deer are so when the neighbors pressure all the deer go in there when they come on to where i can see them they're coming out of there If I spook a deer, it's going in there. So I just don't, I I know that's a sanctuary and I don't hunt it. About the third year that I was hunting there, I had a three-year-old buck that was a pretty good eight-pointer. I sort of wanted to shoot him, but I didn't really care if I didn't. And um, I ended up passing on him one time because it wasn't a great shot. I had a bunch of trail camera pictures of him. The next year, got photos of him. He'd started to throw some kickers off his G2s. That's how he got his name, Kicker. And I hunted him pretty hard and um, actually missed him as a four-year-old. And uh, just stupid hit a branch. He came out at one in the afternoon, caught me off guard, and I I hit a branch and missed him. The next year, as a five-year-old, I didn't have any photos of him until mid-October. And I actually never had any photos of him any time before mid-October he just didn't show up until then and I never actually saw him um, on the hoof that hunting season so the following year when he was six could have been seven um, because I didn't really recognize him until he was what I thought was three so he was either six or seven and I had a few photos of him Um, again not till mid-October and only at night And it was early November, I think it might have actually been November 1st, but I don't remember the date exactly. I had hunted a stand that overlooks the sanctuary. It's an observation stand where I can get in there on the right wind and I can watch that sanctuary place. And I hadn't seen Kicker at all, and the guy that was videoing with me, I told him, you know, this is like the third year that I've been hunting this deer, the second year seriously. I can't just keep doing this because I'm not not shooting any deer. And maybe this deer is not killable because he never shows up in any other place except, you know, this one little small area. We haven't seen him. If we don't see him this morning here in the sanctuary, I'm just going to give up on him. I'm going to go hunt some other deer. And we didn't see him. It got to be about 11 in the morning. It was pretty windy. So I said, let's just climb down, head to the truck, grab something to eat, and go to this back section where I had a small food plot where... There was a lot of deer around it, and I said, let's just find another deer to hunt. So we walked in on a path. Um, there's a lot of tall grass that you have to walk through, and I had drove my four-wheeler up and down to make a path, which is something I had not done before, but I was, I was thinking the way I was normally walking into the stand was an easy way, but it probably wasn't the right way because I was going through too much of the stuff that I thought deer could bed in or would cross, uh, my tracks. So we went down this four-wheeler trail and we climbed into the stand and maybe 20 minutes later, um, kicker got out of his bed and walked right into us directly downwind the entire time. He wouldn't go in the food plot because the wind wasn't, you know, for him to get in the food plot, the wind was wrong for him. He wanted the wind to be in his face the whole time. So we're hunting the stand with the quote-unquote right wind for the food plot, but those big ones, they won't do that. He walked in downwind the entire time. Why he didn't smell us, I don't know, and he got to about 48 yards, and, and I shot him, and that was that.
2: <laughs> wow. So there, there's about eight different things you mentioned in that story that I kind of thought about, okay, that was probably something that helped him have success this time, and that was probably yeah. something, but I'm curious for you, yeah. what stands out for you is like the big thing or two that actually resulted in it working out this time?
0: Well, the, the, the first and most important thing is that I knew where that deer lived basically for three years and the rut with old, like truly mature deer, not three year olds, probably not four year olds, but truly mature deer in pressured areas. The rut is exceptionally different than everybody thinks it is. So the previous Um, when he was a four year old and I had missed him, that was around the 28th, 29th of October. So he was coming out at midday looking for does, the first does to come into heat. Well, after I missed him a day or two later, we saw that deer every day for 10 days and he was on a neighbor's piece and he had six or seven does and he was, it was basically almost. Like last year, it was right at Bayhow. He never left for ten days, and I think that's what these really old, mature deer—they don't have a rut like what most people think. They're mm-hmm. not going to be out chasing does. They're not running around silly. They get the first doe that comes in the heat. They put her into a, you know an area they feel safe, and they keep her there. And other does that come into that area, they know that the dominant bucks there, when they're ready to breed. That's where they go. So you have an exceptionally small window to kill these really big deer. They're not out chasing does. They're not out running willy-nilly silly around like they do where there's a lot of them and the pressure, or the, the competition for does is high. So the big picky for me was knowing that if I didn't see that buck between around the 28th of October and the 2nd of November, I probably had no chance whatsoever to kill him because he was going to lock down and not move, and I didn't know where he would be. So... The biggest key was I started hunting a little bit sooner than I normally would have in those sanctuary, those really good, you know, kind of risky areas to hunt. And I got lucky and, and made the move. You know, that was the second key was I came in on a path where I didn't spook him out of his bed. If I had walked our normal path, I absolutely would have jumped in. No question. Because where he stood up out of his bed was within 15 yards of where we normally walk and he knew that. That's why he was betting there. Cuz I think he had seen us do it before or knew that that was an entrance route for people and he was in a place where he he could slip away if he didn't if anybody showed up. Well, we went around him and got into that stand. So knowing exactly how those big deer used the route was a big key and using a different entrance was a big key, but the I mean the, the biggest key of all is that deer was pressured everywhere except where I hunted and I don't hunt early season. I mean, I'll, I can count on one hand, the number of times I've hunted that particular property before the 20th of October. I just don't do it. There's no point in it because the big deer aren't really up on their feet in daylight. There's so many other deer that can spook you and and mess things up that it's just not worth it. The window to kill these deer is crazy small and it sucks because I'd love to go the whole month of October. I'd love to hunt them every day, but you just can't do it because they react so quickly to any pressure. Yeah.
2: Now, speaking of the window of opportunity for these types of deer, do you recall Mm -hmm. what the other conditions were on that day? You know, wind or weather, was there anything else that helped make sure that deer was up on his feet and moving and during daylight?
0: Yeah. I mean, it was cold and it was pretty, pretty windy in the morning. I mean, that's what kind of drove me out of the observation stand in the first place. I intended to sit there until about 1 or 2, but the wind was just hitting us right in the face, and it was cold wind. And um, I just got frustrated and cold and said, let's move, because I hadn't seen him. But in a lot of ways, I don't – I mean, obviously I like it when we get a cold front, and I like it when the conditions are good. But I don't think the weather has nearly as much impact on them as people think. When those does are getting ready to come in, they're going to rut. last year was a great example because we had a pretty warm period there for that first week of November and I was seeing every buck that I knew was mature or close to it that I thought I would see during the rut I mean I walked in at midday and it was like 80 degrees and I saw all four of those deer they were all up getting ready you know kind of cruising around because the first does were starting to come in and they didn't care that it was 80 degrees they were up doing what they do. You know, they might they might bed down earlier, but it's not the bucks doing it. It's the does. I mean, the does spend more time bedded when it's hot, not the bucks. If the does are up, the bucks would be up. They don't care what the weather is. They're going to do what the does do. So, I mean, the weather can have some impact, but I don't think it's quite as dramatic as people think, and I think we think of it the wrong way. It's not, they're not laying down, the bucks aren't laying down because they're hot the does are laying down because they're hot and if you find the does and get in their area the bucks will be there too
2: yeah makes sense can, can you elaborate a little bit on your point about how some of these mature bucks operate differently during the rut in areas like michigan or really heavily pressured areas I mean, yeah. is there is there anything different other than the fact that they're just not chasing as much do you see the timing different or anything else
0: yeah i mean the timing is the timing for the quote unquote peak is very, is for me is very different because they lock down um, so much sooner. So in a, in a place like Iowa or Ohio where there's a lot of mature bucks and you know, maybe there's the, the the doe to buck ratio is a little bit better or maybe it's not, there's just more older bucks that are going to battle for those does. They need to move around and find those that they can get without being bullied off by another buck and some of your three and four year old bucks that are sub the ones that people end up shooting well they're they're not going to get those they got to really search because there's enough truly dominant deer to keep them away from those first early you know cycling does in michigan there's no such thing that the, a truly mature buck is going to get as many as he wants and nobody's going to challenge him in his primary, he's learned, you know, after four or five years, if he walks around, he gets shot at. So he doesn't do it. He's got a set number of places where he feels safe, and he won't go anywhere else. He doesn't need to because the does are going to come to him because those safe places are where they feel safe, too. So you've got to think about, you know, as, as it gets into late October, these deer are not only, you know, starting to feel more ruddy, they felt a continual increase in human activity in the woods since mid-September, and more guys say, oh, here comes the rut, you know, we're going to hunt more. Well, the deer know that, so they start compressing that home range. They don't expand that home range during the rut. They would if people weren't there, but because there's more people, they leave their home range, and they're like, oh, I smell somebody. I got to go back. You know, they're always going to put survival first, And, and everybody knows that because if you see a buck chasing a doe and you spook him, does he not run away? Yes, he does. Yeah. Now he may run with the doe if she runs his, you know, the same path. But if you're in between the buck and the doe and you spook him, he's, he's gone. So it's not that they lose all sensibility. They don't. Survival is still number one. So what they're going to do is they're going to have smaller home ranges. And they're going to find them first does because nobody's challenging them. And when they get those first does, they're going right into that sanctuary and they're going to stay for. A week <laughs> the lockdown here is worse than in a lot of ways it's worse than any other state that i've hunted because they simply don't have to chase those
2: yeah to your point when i've when i think back on all you know my my years here where i'm really been paying attention to things in michigan i don't really see a whole lot of you know, new bucks during the rut. You know, in most areas you talk, you hear about these Mm -hmm. roamers that show up, these new bonus bucks or whatever Mm -hmm. in the rut cruising from somewhere else. I never see that, at least on my main Michigan properties. Is that something you're seeing too, just a lack of that?
0: Yeah, I don't, I mean, I don't see new bucks in general. Around, see, the place where I, I hunt, where I feel like I have my best chance at shooting older deer, I don't have any bucks there right now. I don't have any photos. I never do. it's around the 15th of October that they show up and that's because they're getting kicked off of other places. And then they come to where they know they've been safe before. And by around Halloween, you know, if I've done my trail cameras correctly on scrapes and, you know, spent some time, I probably, I probably know 95% of the bucks that are there. I've gotten pictures or I've seen them. Um, I don't see any different ones almost ever. And, Late season, if you know, a bean field gets left, maybe I'll pick up a buck, but even then deer I'm seeing after gun season, the bucks, they're the same ones I've seen all along. Um, so no, I don't I don't have, you know, really new ones come in. Maybe some yearlings, but I don't really pay attention enough to them to know if they're new or not.
2: Right, right. So so given this kind of unique element to the rut here in states like this, where there is this lack of chasing, there's a lot of m- greater mm-hmm. kind of emphasis on the lockdown period, how do you typically hunt? Cause it sounds like when you're hunting kicker, that was a little bit different cause you knew where the specific buck was better. Maybe that's how you mm-hmm. always do it. But I guess how do you approach the rut in that type of situation from a hunting standpoint?
0: I really, I really have to, I really rely on the trail cameras and if I don't have a picture of a mature deer, um, before the 25th, 26th of October, I'm not going to hunt there. And you know, last year in Michigan, I, d- I just didn't hunt here. I had one pretty old deer that was five years old, but he hadn't grown anything for for antlers since age three. He was bigger at age three than at age five. Jeez. I actually hunted uh, the edge of a bean field, whatever, the fifth or sixth of October was the first time I hunted. And there was a bunch of oaks dropping acorns there. And I felt like you know, I had the right wind. It was a little, it, we had a cold front ice, and I told myself every year I've seen this deer. He's living in this part. If he's there, he's coming out tonight. And he did. And I passed him at 10 yards because he just, he hadn't grown anything antler wise. And he would just be a fantastic deer for my son to shoot. So I let him go. He hunted him all bow season, uh, had a bunch of encounters, didn't shoot him, and then he ended up killing him in muzzle season. But that was the only mature deer that i had to Michi- in michigan to hunt so i pretty much just hunted those and went you know to other places i basically didn't hunt here so if i don't have a picture of a big you know a big mature deer by the 20 25th of october um i just don't hunt that place because i don't think they're going to show up now if i do then i'm going to hunt starting around the 25th and i'm going to get into those thicker transition areas fairly tight to where i think they're bedding and And be pretty aggressive until, you know, either I see them or shoot them or screw something up. But by the fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth of November, it gets awfully tough on those really big ones because they pretty much get those does and they're locked down pretty hard.
2: Yeah. So, are you focusing? Sounds like you're focusing more on transition and betting versus like funnels and pinch points at that time.
0: Yeah, I mean, our funnels and pinch points in Michigan are quite different than, say, Iowa, where you have a you know a very obvious ditch that they can't get down or don't want to get down. We don't have a lot of terrain that deer won't readily cross. And sometimes you can use cover, like a fence row or something, but sometimes there's tree stands in those fence rows, and they won't use those. So I'm primarily focusing on where the doe's bed, where the thickest cover is that the doe's will be, that leads to where the bucks will live. So it's more of an edge than an actual funnel or a pinch point. And then within that edge, you know, I'll try to figure out the best place to kind of squeeze them down as best I can. But you know, so many of our woodlots are squares, so there's not a lot of funnels and pinch points in there.
2: Yeah. You, you talked about the trail camera piece, how you're, you're really focusing on mm-hmm. whether or not you've got a mature buck on camera by that late October timeframe. frame. How are mm-hmm. how are you using trail cameras at that time specifically to to figure that out?
0: Well, key is, and it's I can only do this on one of the places that I hunt. Um, you, you have to use a four wheeler or something like you can't, or the the cameras that send pictures to you, they're great too. And I've got flack, you know, with this before because people and even Jeff Sturgis and I disagree, and Jeff is a fantastic deer hunter, but he does not like it when people use four wheelers. (laughs) I killed kicker because I used a four wheeler. I, I check my cameras. I drive right up to them and I try to start like in August so that at least once a week they hear that four wheeler and I drive right up to where the cameras are. I leave it running. When I hang tree stands, I leave it running anytime I'm doing anything else and I don't try to be quiet. I don't try to hide what I'm doing. I need those deer to get used to the sound of that four-wheeler not associate it with any danger Um, otherwise I can't check the cameras because I'm going to spook deer it's just not a big enough area to not the sanctuary is you know it's decent size at 10 acres but you got to remember that only leaves me 20 acres to hunt so I can't physically get to where I want to check the cameras without at least rustling some leaves or making some sort of noise so I don't even try to be quiet. I take the 4 in there, check the cameras. I'm going to check them about once a week, you know, just to stay on that pattern. I hang them on um, uh, scrapes wherever I can. I've not really had any luck making my own scrapes. I've just not, not had it work, but, you know, I kind of know where some traditional scraping areas are, so I'm hanging them on those scrapes. I'm hanging them on the edges of bean fields where I can to get a lot of photos. And, I'm just putting them in those high traffic areas and checking them once a week until something shows up.
2: Do you do you pay any attention to where you place your cameras in regards to height, or like do you hit, put them way high and angle down? I hear lots of different opinions on whether cameras are spooking deer just from the flash or noise or anything like that. What do you think about that?
0: I don't. I've not noticed. I mean, I've noticed deer looking at the camera. I've noticed, um, you know, where it seems like they saw it, but. You know, I took plenty of photos of kicker, and he didn't care. So yeah. I'm assuming if he didn't care, no deer will care. Now, I don't use, you know, I, I don't have the cameras that have the big white flash bulb. It's just the normal, you know, LEDs. But um, I just put them normal height. I don't angle them. I, you know, sometimes I put them too low or too high and screw up, but not
2: intentionally. Right. <laughs> so Um, this, this concept of the sanctuary, I want to go back to that. You were talking about the sanctuary, the kicker Mm -hmm. was on and Mm -hmm. I've got kind of a similar situation like that where I've got a nice big swamp, um, that I've tried to leave as a sanctuary, but similar to what you have, I've got neighbors that hunt right on the property line, which unfortunately is the Mm -hmm. line, the edge of that sanctuary. So I'm curious about two things Mm -hmm. that you've seen, you know, one, how do you think your neighbors impact that sanctuary? And then number two, what about the wind, specifically with neighbors? I mean, what if you've got a guy that's hunting on the line of that sanctuary with his wind blowing into your sanctuary, quote-unquote, your sanctuary every day or every weekend or something? Does that just completely Mm -hmm. negate the effectiveness of of leaving that area there alone?
0: Nope, it's perfect. Um, Part of it is just luck. So if you think about – so I I told you that the property is basically a square. The road is – the east boundary so the neighbor property is on the west boundary so which when we have west wind which we have mostly when they go in to hunt their wind is blowing right into the sanctuary and that's awesome because i know no big bucks will be killed that day by them (laughs) i hope like crazy on the opening day of gun season i need two things i either need a, a, a west wind or i need it to be calm because if it's calm and they come in those deer it's done um, it's they're done before before daylight on opening day. yeah it's over. They're not going to kill one. The only chance they have is that there was a buck outside of that sanctuary or whatever, and he's coming across their place to get back into it. but they have really good cover. They have way better piece of property than I can way better. The cover is way better, there's more of it. They have the best piece in that section. And I'm sure they kill some good ones. I just don't know about it. But when they come in and the wind's from the west, I'm I'm pretty confident they're not going to shoot any deer there. You know, Because the deer know it. They know where the scent is. They know they're safe because nobody's coming in at them from the east. And they know if they just stay put, they'll be fine. So I think it helps you to have some guys on the edge if the wind's blowing in there. If they're on the edge and the wind's not blowing in there, that's a different story. That can be tough. Yeah. But usually those deer, I mean, when they have a sanctuary, that's, that's where they're spending the majority of their lives. They know what happens. They know what's going on. They know when someone walks in. They know where they've encountered people and stands or blinds before, and they just don't do it if you're hunting them. That's another thing that I people think this sounds crazy, but I think Kicker knew I was hunting him. But I hadn't killed any bucks there for, what, three years? I hadn't even really killed any deer because where we shoot the does is nowhere near where those deer are. I'm not sure he equated me with danger. (laughs) I hadn't heard anything. You know? He might have seen me, might have smelled me, but I'd never done anything to him. I'd never done anything to any other deer. You know? I can drive in there with a four-wheeler and the deer will not leave the field. Wow. So they don't think I'm... That scary, and so that gives you a li- just a little slight margin. That might be when the wind was blowing at him. You know, I had done all the scent control stuff I could, but he had to have smelled a little bit, and he might have just thought, "Oh, it's just that guy." <laughs> and he's not close. You know, he's not that close because I don't smell him that great. You know, and right. if you watch the video, I-, I mean, I hit my bow on the cameraman stand, and it clanged hard, and he looked
2: right up at me. Jeez, and he didn't. He didn't run. <laughs> so, I don't know. What do you what do you think about these bucks in in Michigan or wherever? Or maybe maybe you think it's different. I'm curious. How do you think these deer, these mature bucks use the wind to their advantages? I mean, I hear some people think they always travel with the wind in their face. I've heard some people that think sometimes they travel with it behind them so they can watch what's in front of them or smell what's behind them. I mean, what's your take on all that?
0: I think they always they always use the wind to their advantage. And I think most of the time they have it in their face. And I think the, that's probably something I do a little bit different than other guys. Um, when the wind is right for a tree stand for me, I don't hunt it because I don't think a big one's going to come through that whatever I'm hunting, whether it's a food plot or a small funnel or an edge, he's not going to walk down that edge if he can't smell where he thinks dangerous. So you have to cheat it. You have to either get it quartering enough that, the deer feels safe and you have to know you have to shoot him at a certain spot before he gets you know exactly downwind but i hunt you know if i'm hunting a trail or an edge and i expect the deer to come from the north i'm going to hunt some sort of a north wind or a south wind because i want the wind blowing at the deer i just have to figure out how to do it so that it's blowing at the deer but i'm not necessarily blowing at the deer
1: yeah. Because if
0: it was blowing away from them, they're not coming down that trail. They they just won't do it. They, I mean, if you think about how many deer hunters there are a square mile, there is no way an old buck is just going to walk around. Yeah, he knows he's going to get shot because <laughs> he's been shot at. So it's, they don't do it. It's now funny. in Kansas, Iowa. I don't, I don't even care about the wind. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they. I mean, I, I still. I still try to follow it, but I'm not nearly as worried about it as,
2: as I am anywhere
0: else. Yeah.
2: Have you seen anything here in these pressured areas in regards to how they're using wind to choose where they bed? Do you think that they're bedding in different areas based on wind direction? Nope. I think. I mean, I think they've—so
0: yes and no. I think they're picking the bedding locations based on where they're not going to encounter people. So I think throughout the fall, they have a process of movement they, they have preferred food sources. They have preferred areas. If they don't encounter people, they keep using them. But as soon as they encounter people, they keep whittling it down until two things happen. One, they find a spot that they like. They're not getting messed with by people or the rut starts to come. So that's why I always say, you know, if I can find a buck or get a picture of him after the 20th of October... I'm pretty confident I'm going to hunt that deer the entire rest of the deer season because he won't leave. Even if I spook him, I don't think he's going to leave because he's already eliminated all these other spots and he knows the rut's coming. I can't keep bumping around. I got to start establishing myself here so I can get some of these does so you can get away with a little bit more. But I think where they pick their beds is where they feel the most safe and the wind is part of that. But more of it is, they're not running into people. So they might bed there because they can smell a certain direction, but they won't bed there if they can smell a certain direction and it's not thick enough or they're being left alone, they still won't bed there. Yeah.
2: And to to um to the idea of figuring out, you know, where these bucks are, if there's a buck on this property, like you said, if if you've got one there, you know, late October, he's probably gonna stay there because of all these other areas he's been mm-hmm. bumped off of. Is there anything else you're doing other than just having a camera on a scrape or something like that and identifying that there is a buck there? Is there anything else other than that you're doing to actually try to pattern specific bucks throughout the fall?
0: Not really, because I don't I mean I don't necessarily hunt deer on patterns because they get in patterns during the early season when they're on, you know, bed to feed. And sure I try to do that. I mean I have my cameras running right now and I'm hoping a big one shows up that I can pattern so there's no acorns in my section this year, except two big white oaks that are full. That's a dream <laughs> because if I can find a big one that's living there, I know where he's coming in early October, but I don't have any pictures to justify it. But so I'm not really hunting patterns. I'm hunting like places they'll, they'll go through to find does to cruise. So I know where the, you know, the thickest spots are. I know where the edges are that they want to use to travel to find those does and so i'm not really hunting i guess that's a pattern but it's not like it's not a normal pattern it's i'm just hunting where i think these deer are going to end up walking through looking for does yeah
2: so is that when you're figuring that kind of stuff out is that always preseason? you know february march or are you actually doing some scouting in season for that kind of thing or other stuff
0: in michigan it's anymore it's I've you know I've hunted the same places for several years so I learned it but generally if it's a new area um you have to learn it kind of in season you can look outside of the season and say okay this is the this is the thickest area I think this is where they're going to move through but if you don't establish that as a sanctuary area and you just hunt it then you're changing everything that they do I mean it's so important to have a place where It's like a, you know, ground zero. You need a ground zero where those deer will always go to and always come from. And the only way they'll do that is if it's not getting pressured. And sometimes you get lucky and you can have a place like that and sometimes you don't. But generally, even if you're sharing a property with three or four guys, there's usually a place people don't look at or they won't hunt for some reason. And that's probably where a lot of those deer end up and stay. So if you have that sanctuary established, and you have that ground zero where they're coming and where they're going, and you learn that over time as you hunt a place, that's what everything revolves around. Like, I already know what I'll do on the place, you know, that I'll hunt, the three places I'll hunt this fall in Michigan. I already know how I'll hunt them because I have a few years of experience and I know where those either true sanctuaries are or as close to a sanctuary as I can get. So that's what I'm going to focus on. I'm going to hunt them coming in and out of that.
2: Can you... Could you walk us through that plan, that hypothetical plan, you know, starting from opening day, like on one of these, let's say, uh, I'm just kind of curious about how you would approach, you know, the first month and a half before gun season on one of these properties, Mm -hmm. you know, if you could think of some example scenarios and walk us through how you might transition through that period with how you hunt it based on what you know.
0: Yeah. So I'm already doing the weekly trail camera checks. So the, the, the trail cameras right now are on, You know, the edge of bean fields, because we can't use anything else, we can't use any mineral anymore. So, you know, the edges of bean fields pointed down the wood line so I can try to get as many photos as I can or small food plots if I have them. And I'm already establishing myself in those areas with the four-wheeler so the deer know when they hear it or they have a little bit of disturbance that they're all right. They don't need to run away, and eventually they get used to it. And I'm just hoping I see, you know, a deer that I can, that I want to shoot. If I see one that I want to shoot on the camera, I keep the camera going. I hope nothing changes. I hope the beans don't start turning yellow before, you know, October 5th or everything changes. And I also start looking for those acorns because they're, that's going to trump the beans, even if they stay green. So on the one place, I've already found the two trees that have acorns. I already have a tree stand there um, just because it's been there before. So if a buck shows up in daylight within eight to 10 days of the opener, I'm going to hunt him and I'm going to hunt him right on the edge of that, um, field where the acorns are when the wind's right. And I'll keep hunting him until I either shoot him or the photos, you know, turn out to be nothing but nighttime or I feel like I spooked him. So then I'll give it probably to around the tenth of October and if I haven't shot him, I'm out of there because by then the beans will start turning, things will start changing and I don't want to be caught in that transition where I don't know what he's doing and I don't know where he's going and I don't wanna I don't wanna chase him out of there. You know? Yeah. yeah so definitely. Once once the 10th of October comes, and usually that never happens. <laughs> I usually don't have any deer to hunt, you know. So once the 10th of October comes around, I start doing a bunch more work and getting caught up, getting prepared for, for the rut. And, and I'll still hunt during that time. I'll take my son out because, you know, he's playing football and everything. He doesn't have the luxury of waiting. So we hunt every weekend on, you know, some place where we don't feel like, were doing any damage by hunting it. Um, and he, you know, he's still at that point where he doesn't, you know, he holds out for, for big bucks, but he doesn't care, you know, how he, he's not at that point where he really needs to shoot a five-year-old. He'll shoot a three-year-old buck. Yeah. Um, he just won't shoot year-and-a-half or two-and-a-half.
2: So you've got that mid-October time frame then coming up. Are you you just – other than hunting with your son, are you waiting till you get to that late October time from them? After that,
0: pretty much. I mean, and honestly, everybody talks about you know the October law. Um, that's around the fifteenth is when things really start to pick up for me. I start to get a lot of different bucks on trail camera, and that's when I start to figure out what I have because the October lull is is not real. Um, deer they don't stop moving. They're on the fact they're moving more all the way through October what they do is they get away from the people that are hunting them and they start to change as the food sources change. So the beans start to yellow and brown. They're out of them until they're completely brown. You know, um, corn is a little bit different. Some of it starts coming off. Um, that does, that doesn't come off is pretty dried down and, you know, they don't like pulling it off the stalks if they don't have to. And there's usually acorns, you know, you get that, we usually get a fair bit of rain in the fall, so any of the browse is starting to get sweeter because it's had that influx of moisture, and it's starting to get ready to die. So all those sugars start to be released after frost, just like brassica plants. Mm-hmm. You know, natural forage does the same thing, so there's no lull. The deer have just changed. They're moving into different areas, and I'm starting to see a lot more bucks on the cameras, and I'm starting to figure out, okay, this one's going to stay here. This one's going to stay here, you know, and I'm, I'm getting geared up for the, and I'll hunt any major cold front after the 15th. I'll go in and hunt like it's a rut hunt just in case they're starting to do something they shouldn't do and get up, you know, in, earlier in the afternoon or hanging out later in the morning, checking scrapes or whatever. But, you know, from a 15th on I'll hunt anytime the conditions are really good.
2: Have you seen anything in regards to how many sits you can pull off per stand before it starts going downhill pretty drastically in Michigan or anywhere like this? Yeah,
0: Yeah, it's 100% related to whether the deer know you're in there or not. Um, If you can walk in there and they don't know it, and you can walk out of there and they don't know it, you can hunt it every single day. Um, The reason that they decline a little bit is because you're leaving some sort of hint that you were there. And I, and I don't have very many fans where I can't leave some sort of hint. I mean, we have smaller properties here in Michigan. Usually you can get permission. If I could get permission from a neighbor to cross their place to hunt where I want to hunt on one of the places I, I have permission to hunt. It would be awesome, but I don't, I have to come in from one direction and it's the wrong direction. So I have to be pretty, particular about when I hunt it because I don't have any way else to get in and when I come out in the evenings I have to walk through a bean field there's no other way to come out so it really depends on how much impact you have on that stand getting in and out of it if you have no or minimal impact you can hunt a bunch if it you have to walk through a bean field on your way out you're not going to get away from with that very often yeah
2: yeah speaking of stands in some states like Ohio or Iowa that I've hunted, I feel like there's just so much more leniency with what you can get away with in a tree stand too. Like these deer just don't seem to be trained to look up as much as I feel like they do in Michigan. Have you seen anything like that? And and do you do anything different with your stand setups here to account for that?
0: So, I I killed a deer in Kansas off the ground, sitting on a three legged stool on the edge of an alfalfa field. And alfalfa fields in Kansas are basically dirt with a few sprigs here and there. (laughs) Um, I didn't have any cover. I didn't use a blind, nothing. I was just sitting on a stool on the edge of a dirt field. And I used a decoy. He came out of the, the creek bottom. He walked around the decoy looking at me like, what is that bump sitting there? And when I went to draw, It was one of those cheap three-legged Walmart stools. When I drew, the front leg bent, so the stool fell out from under me, so I kind of wobbled and had to sort of (laughs) half-crouch. The entire time, the deer is staring at me doing that and let me shoot him.
2: That's amazing.
0: (laughs) So, yeah, they don't really have the same level of get-up-and-go in other states as they do in Michigan. Um, In Michigan, I'm pretty particular about how I'll hang my stands. I also have two people in the tree most of the time so that makes it double because I got a camera guy with me so I you know I don't go crazy high but I don't like to be any lower than 18 or 19 feet and I won't go on you know a telephone pole type tree I got to have a couple of trunks and you know I try to camouflage as much as I can in Iowa Kansas Ohio um I don't worry about it quite as much I, I try to get high in Ohio because of the hills but it's not because I feel like they're they're going to see me.
2: Do you ever brush in your tree stands with additional stuff or anything like that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, those artificial Christmas trees, if you,
0: like, go around, you know, after January 1st and, you know, dumpster dive, <laughs> you can get a lot <laughs> of camouflage because those artificial Christmas tree limbs are awesome because they're flexible. You know, they, they have good cover on them, and you just put a, you know, a screw or something in the tree and you just twist it around it. And those work really well. Um, I've taken, I, I try to hang in Oak trees cause they keep their leaves so much longer. Yeah. Um, but you know, I'll definitely put something up there if I can, you know, when I, on my little property that I own here, you know, where I hinge cut, um, if I'm hinge cutting near a tree stand location, I'll hinge cut, you know, a couple of trees and put them behind it so that there's brush and stuff around the trees too.
2: Yeah. Nice. So we talked a little bit about your early season in October, hunting, we talked about the rut, but what about the late season? Uh, For a lot of people, I think in situations like this, the late season can be pretty tough, especially here in Michigan after, Mm -hmm. you know, as you know, our firearm season is just a a deluge of of hunters. So many hunters, everything seems to Mm -hmm. change. How, if at all, can you make the best of the late season in a place like that?
0: Yeah, well, it's, For me, it's been, um, if the deer that I want to shoot, now Kicker was the exception. I never saw him during muzzleloader season. So every year, I always thought he got shot. So I had to go through a whole winter and spring and summer, assuming that I didn't have him to hunt more, because I never saw him in muzzleloader. But every other, you know, mature buck that I've hunted on the place I shot Kicker, um, I could easily shoot them in muzzleloader season, because they come out. And in fact, the last week of gun season, they're coming out in broad daylight. The buck my son shot this year, I mean, he was five years old. He just only scored about 120, but he's as mature as they get. The year before, um, I had him probably every single day from around Thanksgiving through the end of the deer season. I had him coming out, you know, at three in the afternoon every day. Wow. And I could have easily shot him. But I wanted him to get a year bigger because I thought, well, he'll peak next year. He'll peak next year. Well, this year he didn't. <laughs> he just, <laughs> he was the same size. So my son shot him. I saw him two or three times the last week of gun season coming out to this um, cornfield. My son had basketball, so it was like mid muzzleloader season before we could get to him. We saw him one evening. He came out and we didn't get a shot. And there was like 10 other bucks with him. So we waited two nights, went back that night and shot him that night. So I think the, the late season, that's the key to having a sanctuary. If you have it and you really do treat it like a sanctuary, and, and I pretty much don't gun hunt. Um, I'll go and sit once in a while, but way far away, just kind of observational stuff. If you have that sanctuary and you have a food source and you leave those deer alone, um, it's remarkable how many deer you can see in the late season, and how many of them will be the bucks that you saw all bow season, as long as they didn't get a shot. Yeah, yeah. That, but you can't, you can't mess with them. I mean, you can't. There's <laughs> zero tolerance. You just can't move them.
2: That's, that's right. What I've seen too on one of my main Michigan properties that I do have a little bit of control over just like you, mm-hmm. I've got a regular sanctuary, but then I just essentially let my entire property be a sanctuary during firearm season for the exact reason you mentioned, because yeah. that allows some of yeah. these bucks to make it through, preserve some area of relative safety. And then, like you said, yeah. when you've got a good food source and you wait for the right timing, then the late season, I go in there and lo and behold, a couple of these bucks usually are still alive and feel comfortable because no mm-hmm. one's been bugging yeah. them in this little small area. Um, but it does take a particular situation, you know, being able to have some type of spot that you can leave off limits like that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it, you gotta, I mean, that's why that's one of the things, you know, people, you know, I've, I've leased ground before and, and I just bought a small piece, you know, it's, it's not that I think leasing is a great thing. It's not that I think, you know, you have to have money to hunt and you should be able to afford to buy property. It's just a simple question. How serious are you? You know, I'm very serious about deer hunting. I love it. And it's not that I'm obsessed with antlers. It's not that I'm, you know, only going to be happy, you know, if I can kill these big bucks or I'm doing it to be famous. It's nothing of that. It's what my passion is. So if that's your passion, you have to ask yourself, what is it worth to you? What are you willing to do? And if that means paying a little bit for lease so that you can have the conditions where you can have the type of hunting you want, then you have to be willing to do that and put up with what everybody's going to say about you. If it means, you know, buying a piece of ground, which is actually more affordable than people think. If you get the right one, that's what you have to be willing to do. But so many guys get mad Or, you know, maybe it's just because we're in the media. I mean, I know you get plenty of Facebook comments and other Mm -hmm. things. It's not that we're doing something anybody else can't do. It's that we're willing to do what most people aren't. You know, I'm willing to pay a little bit of money a month to own land. I didn't get a very big piece. It's only 17 acres, but it's something I can do. I'm willing to save up some money to pay for a lease each year. You know, I'm willing to drive seventeen hours to Kansas. What are you willing to do? That's that's the question. And, and it, nobody's stopping you. You know, it's it's your it's your own choice. Nobody is preventing you from doing it. Very true.
2: And I'd say also in addition to what are you willing to do, it's what are you willing to sacrifice as well. Right, you know, exactly. To, to have that yeah. little extra money to pay for a lease or that little extra money to put on a payment for a property. Yeah. You know, don't buy the big fancy truck or don't buy the big new screen TV. Um, you know, I think a lot of us, if we make choices, sacrifice in some areas, we can find that little extra money or maybe it's time, a little extra time, you know, sometimes you have to sacrifice if you want to prioritize deer hunting and these types of things.
0: Yep. Yeah. And that's a good point. Cause I bought a brand new truck. I had a brand new Ram. It was like 550 bucks a month and I had it 10 months and I sold it. And now I have like a 2010 F one fifty that's one third the price. And that was 100% because I was writing out the check for the bill on I was like, are you doing (laughs) this was like the cost of a really good out of state deer license every month yeah and i said (laughs) screw it i'm going hunting yeah you know it's all about choices
2: yeah that's that's so so much the truth so on this topic of uh the importance of a place you know you're not going to kill something Mm -hmm. if you don't have the deer there and a property that can hold mature deer in a place like Michigan, how do you find an area that can hold or does hold quality bucks? How do you go about finding those spots, whether it be by permission or, you know, I guess I'd be curious. Number one, how do you find a spot like that just to try to get permission to hunt? And then number two, I'd like to hear from you, especially given the fact that you're doing some of this with whitetail properties. How do you pick mm-hmm. the right spot to buy um, in an area like this? So two-part question there for you. So the first
0: one by permission is... Is easier to answer, but it has a less satisfying result. The easiest answer is whatever one you can get permission on (laughs) because (laughs) it's hard to do that. I mean, sure, you can go around and look for these really prime places and ask permission and do that. You know, just have a list of property that you think is really good and some that's not so good and ask right on down the list until you get permission. Because sometimes the pieces that don't look as good, you know, might be the right one. They might be in the right location, and maybe the neighbor property is really good, and you can, you know, hunt this new piece better with less pressure and start sucking some of those deer over. You just never know. And pressure or permission in Michigan is pretty hard to get, so you can't be that choosy. You're just going to have to get the piece, and you got to hunt it a couple years because you even you just don't know until you hunt it. Even if you scout it, do all the things right, you don't know until it's actually hunting season of how things go. So my advice on getting permission is get whatever piece you can get. And the more, the better, because that gives you options. Yeah. And it's, leasing is a little bit easier because you might have a little more options. You might have, you know, you're coming in with a little bit different approach than every other guy that's asked. But it's, it's still not easy to find a, a decent place buying is a whole different animal. It's when I bought my place, I, I mean, I was just kind of joking. I said, well, I'm going to look at this piece of ground. I'm going to buy some property. And I wasn't serious about it cause I thought there's no way I'd be able to afford it. Well, once I started doing the math and started understanding the process, I actually could Now, I couldn't buy very much, but the 17 acres of, that I have, you know, in a few years, it's going to be dynamite. It's really good. And it costs almost nothing. So you just have to go into it with a budget, with an idea, you really need to talk to someone who knows about land and can help you through the process. Because they there's so many properties that the realtors have access to that you don't even know about, you know, whether because there's so many different types of Agencies and listing sites that you think, well, I'm looking online and I'm not finding anything. That doesn't mean they're not there. So and it doesn't cost you anything to have a guy represent you as the buyer. The seller pays his commission. So you don't it costs you nothing. And they'll do all the, the legwork and the paperwork. And you know, not to sound salesman-y, but when you have a group like Wetillo Properties where our job is to, to work on hunting land, it's a little different than, you know, Sally's real estate who is selling condos and houses. You know, how much does she really know about hunting land? Almost nothing. Yeah. So how is she going to give you good advice? And and a good agent will tell you, even if you have the money and he's going to make a commission, a good one will say, don't buy that one. It's it's not going to do what you want to do. Let's find another one. Even if it's smaller and less expensive and my commission is going to be smaller because if you're not happy with hunting it, you're not going to recommend that guy to anybody else. So, you know, finding ground to buy is not that hard. Obviously having the money to to buy it is a whole different thing, but you know, there's all kinds of programs that you can look at and there are ways that you can make land a lot more affordable than you think, you know, whether it's renting out the crop ground or actually farming it yourself, which means you don't, you're not, actually going to be farming it you're going to pay a guy for a day to plant it and you're going to buy the feed and then you're going to pay a guy for a day to harvest it and you're going to keep all of that you know rather than 150 bucks an acre you have a little more risk but a lot more reward and you know that's something a good agent can talk you through timber value you know conservation easement programs all kinds of things that you can actually make the property a lot more affordable than than you might think. Yeah.
2: So speaking of owning land, and you mentioned you you own that 17 acres, Mm -hmm. and I know that this is an impossible question because it's different for everybody in every property, but just give me a hypothetical, or maybe just tell me about your property specifically. In an area like this with lots of hunting pressure and a small property, what are some of the things you would prioritize when it comes to actually trying to improve that property, or how do you think through that?
0: So I always look at it as a rule of fourths or a rule of thirds. I want one fourth of the property to be in something that I can put food on or already has food. So it's either crop ground or open enough that you could put food plots. I want one fourth of it in honorable timber. I want one fourth of it in brush. And then I want one fourth of it to be something that's either brush or timber or tall grasses just cover like some sort of cover so if you're going to go with the thirds to make it you know some properties will fit into thirds better you want one third in food one third in kind of standard huntable timber and one third in cover and you can make any property any property have that it just might be more expensive over time and it might take you more energy but you can make a flat wide open bean field into all three of those just going to take you some time (laughs) because you got to plant the trees you got to put in the brush you got to let it you know go over but you can do it and that's the important thing that guys have to think about you know especially if you're on a pretty tight budget i was on a tight budget when i bought my my property so i bought a piece that nobody wanted it had issues people thought it was landlocked it wasn't they just didn't do the research and realized there was an actual easement it didn't look like much. It was kind of open in the middle with some scrubby grass and the woods weren't that great. They didn't They didn't want to look at it for what it could be. They, I don't know if they didn't want to go in and do the work or whatever, but two years' time, I completely transformed that place and I got a heck of a deal on it. So I like to look for that mix and most places have that. You just have to have the vision to see that it may not have it right now, but I can make it that way. You know, because... Unless you're gonna shell out serious money, you know you can't be that choosy. you gotta be able to see what it can be and be willing to turn it into what it needs to be, yeah,
2: so what specifically did you do on your farm? I'm just curious about how you actually took that and put it into action um, on your seventeen acres?
1: Mm-hmm.
0: well, the first thing was I mean nature helped me out and killed all my ash trees, so the ash borer did a lot of the work, so I probably have taken out between 30 and 40 ash trees that were already dead so they by dying were going to open up the canopy anyway i just took them out because i wanted the firewood and you know i just got them out of the way so they weren't falling over and making a mess so once i got most of those trees out then i started cutting down trees that were just big and useless had some cottonwoods had some You know, cherry and maple that were growing crooked. So if they weren't, you know, a tree that had any timber value or any hunting value, meaning they weren't oaks where they would produce acorns, I cut them down for the firewood. Then I started hinge cutting to make it thicker, to let more sunlight in. You know, I want thick. I want everything in there to be thick. So the woods kind of makes a circle around the property. In the center was basically fallow grass with brush. Mostly multiflora rose and um, autumn olive. So once I got the woods kind of taken care of, I bought 200 shrubs, um, hazelnut shrubs and highbush cranberry, and I started putting those in the more opening in the more open areas, so that I'd have some shrubby thick stuff going up. Took any of the natural openings and tilled it, and started a food plot program, and just kept. Every spring, I go in and I hinge cut a little bit more. If there's any, you know, shrubs that are doing well that I don't like where they are, I dig them up and I transplant them. And I'm just trying to make it so that you can't see across it. I am made trails through the thick stuff, through the food plot, so those deer have circuits that they can walk. And they're always hidden, you know. It, the way it lays out is really nice because I can hunt every border and I don't have to go into the center at all. And I just kept making it thicker, making it thicker and, you know, experimenting with different food plots so that I have enough food to keep the deer on there. And it's not the best soil, so it's still a work in progress, but you know, it's, the food plots this year are, are doing much better. I, I had to replant them cause I planted corn and beans in the summer or in the spring and they didn't grow cause it was so dry. So I tilled everything under and I just put my fall stuff in what 10 days ago or something. And all this rain we've had has turned it in, and working really good but just i've just tried to make it thick so if i can hinge cut i hinge cut if i can find a place where the grasses are sort of sparse i'll burn it and try to get them to come back better and planting the shrubs and stuff you know you're not going to see immediate impacts but you know they're already knee to waist high and they were seedlings when i put them in so i'm really starting to see that change but thick cover is where it's at
2: have you started seeing any results in the way of you know more deer hanging out there or better deer, better bucks or anything? Have you seen changes in deer behavior or activity given all these habitat improvements?
0: Yeah, I have. I mean, there's more deer there. There's still not the bucks there that I really want, but we also had the year I bought it was the year EHD hit. Oh. <laughs> so we lost a ton of deer and a ton of bucks. Now, last year in the summer, I got a picture of a really nice buck on my place. In my food plot, and a neighbor about three quarters of a mile away actually shot that book in November and it was mid 140.
1: Wow. So
0: they're starting to show up. I mean, I still haven't quite got it figured out, you know, how to get several bucks to live there and stay there and get older. And they might be. I just haven't hunted it that much because I'm trying to, you know, I'm trying to get an inventory and a stockpile going. So I'll hunt it more this year than I have ever. And I'm trying to get it so that I have a good age structure in there. So if I do shoot a three or four year old, you know, I have another one to take its place. And I just haven't felt like I've had any of that the last couple of years. So I didn't want to shoot any bucks off of it.
2: Do you maintain a sanctuary on a property like that, even though it's you know just 17 acres? Well, sort of, I mean, I
0: kind of treat it like it's the entire thing is a sanctuary. So I will go in, you know, obviously I have to go in there to to plant the food plots and I have trail cameras, but I'll go in there with the four-wheeler like once a week and just zip to where the the trail cameras are and they're in more of the more open stuff. But um, I haven't been in the woods or any of the cover in a year. I mean, since I stopped cutting, I got all the, the firewood out that I wanted. I haven't been inside that woods in over a year. And I don't really have any intentions of going back in there. You know, maybe late this winter after deer season, I'll hike back there and see how it looks. But um, I try to treat the whole property as much as I can. It's not a true sanctuary. It's not like any of the others, but I don't have any, I never walk in there. If I'm in there, it's on the four-wheeler. I mean, we're not going to just walk. When I hang the tree stand, I can go right down the edges, which I have those kind of brush hogs. So it's like a lane drive the four-wheeler hang the tree stand it faces into the property but i never actually have to go into the interior of it unless i'm putting food plots in or checking the trail camera and honestly i shouldn't even do that i shouldn't i should keep it i should either have a camera in the center that sends photos or just keep the cameras up on the perimeter
1: yeah
2: have you you used those wireless cameras much i just got my first one and, and hung it yesterday actually so i'm excited to try that but have you seen good results using that
0: Yeah, my Ohio property, um, last year was the first year I had it and I had one of the Moultrie, um, wireless and it was awesome. I mean, I've used that model several times in different places, but Moultrie just switched over to a new system. So mine doesn't work anymore. So it kind of ticked me off. I have to get a new one, but they're, they are the cat's meow. I mean, yeah, it's 40 bucks or whatever for, a month or two, so that kind of sucks, but I couldn't, there's no other way for me to scout that place in Ohio. I mean, when I was going down there, I knew what the deer were doing and what bucks I was hunting, so they're really, I think they're great, a little more pricey, but just, you know, I'm only going to use it in September, October, November, maybe December, so I guess I can justify the cost that way, but um, it just goes back to that thing, how dad, do you want it? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, how, how serious are you? Yeah. But I, I really, I, I wish they would come down in price. Cause I'd have several more, but, um, on my piece, uh, I mean, you know, that's, that's what's, that's what, you know, you were talking earlier about how me and Brantley, you know, we kind of have parallel careers. I think one of the things we both do, like I'm totally not afraid to say that I don't know everything and that, you know, I just admitted, I shouldn't be going into the center of my place to check that camera. Right. So, and I shouldn't be, but I don't have another sending camera to check. So um, eventually I'll get one and I won't go into the center of my property at all. I'll just have that send it out there. So.
2: Yeah. Yeah. I, I agree. As soon as those go down in price, I'll be doing my best to get my hands on a bunch because just being able to, get that intel without needing to storm in there and spook deer, leaf scent, etc. Um, yep, man, that makes a big difference. With this camera I just got, yep. I hung it kind of in a situation, kind of like what you're describing on your 17. This is a little food plot I have kind of in the core of this main Michigan property hunt that I, I don't ever want to go in there until the absolute best conditions. Usually I save it for the rut, but if I knew there was a buck showing up during daylight there, which that has happened in the past, I'd like to go in there and try Mm -hmm. to hunt him, but usually I don't find that out until November 1st or 2nd when I go there and hunt and check that camera. I'm like, oh, darn, I wish I was here on the 23rd and the 22nd and the 21st. Um, So this year I I put that wireless camera back there, so now I'm going to be able to keep tabs on it. And if Mr. Big shows up on the 7th, well, I might be there the 8th or the 9th or the 10th if the conditions are right. So it can change things. Just be prepared for it to work in reverse because last year I I hunted the opening day shotgun
0: in Ohio. I hunted. I bow hunted the two days before, and then I was going to hunt the first three days of the shotgun season. The first day of the shotgun season, it poured rain the entire day, and it was supposed to rain all the next day. And I'm like, "This sucks. I'm leaving. I have work to do." Well, I got home, and I get. I was getting photos sent to me every morning at that time. At 10 a.m. on the second day of shotgun season. About a hundred and seventy-inch ten-pointer was standing in front of my tree stand
2: for an hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> that's brutal. Yeah, that was a pain. <laughs> yeah, I can I can already see just now. I'm like obsessively checking my email, hoping that there's a picture. You know, I can see that being pretty dangerous come hunting season. Um, yeah, I, I can obsess yeah. about that.
0: <laughs> so it is
2: fun though. I mean, I I like checking trail cameras almost as much as I like hunting. So. Yeah. Yeah. So one last topic I want to touch on before we wrap this up relates to what you just mentioned there, you know, hunting in Ohio, or I know you hunt Kansas and Iowa and mm-hmm. South Dakota and all other, all sorts of places. And being someone mm-hmm. who lives in one of these tougher states to hunt, whether it be here in Michigan or Pennsylvania or New York or New Hampshire, or Georgia, or wherever, a lot of us like to travel to some of these, you know, slightly less pressured states where there's older bucks, better opportunity, mm-hmm. um, you've been able to do that really successfully and consistently. Can you share with us a few of the things that you're doing when it comes to either planning or executing those trips to be so successful?
0: Yeah. I mean, one of the, we all, we all kind of make fun of Michigan a lot and that's because it is hard. You know, there's not a lot of older deer, but the flip side of that is we're the best hunters in the country period. (laughs) If you can kill or see big deer here, you can do it anywhere. So once you do get to the places where the deer, you know, are less pressured and they do act a little bit more normal in the rut where calling and things are affected, you are very lethal. Um, I don't approach different states really any differently than I do in Michigan, and it makes things easier. So if you go in and you look at a map of a piece of public ground, And you think of it in terms of Michigan and you think, well, nobody's going to go here because it's too hard. Or here's a nice thick area of private land that has a nice funnel that goes into the public. You know, if you just think of it as like a Michigan hunter would, you're going to be totally fine. And that's always my approach. You know, I like, I really really like to look at the maps as much as I possibly can. And in a weird way, I you know, I'm doing more media hunts now where I just kind of go to show up at the place and they're going to kind of set us up. And I, I mean, no, they're fun, but I don't like them quite as much because there's so much of the experience missing. You know, I'm not really familiar with the property. I'm not necessarily, you know, usually they let you pick out your stands and they talk it over with you, but it's only a day's worth of it versus, you know, I've already had two months of looking at this piece in Ohio and it's the same piece I hunted last year, but I'm just constantly looking at those maps and figuring out how deer would use it. So I don't have a real different approach other than I'm going to use Google earth and things like that as much as I possibly can. And I'm going to look at it like a Michigan deer hunter would. And when you do that, you'll start to realize how much we've learned as deer hunters because of the pressure deer that we have to hunt. And once you get out there, it almost always works out where Holy crap. They actually are using this funnel. And when I rattle at them, they come towards me. And when I grunt, they don't run away. So it, it really makes it a lot of fun because you're using the things that you've really learned and, you know, kind of honed the craft here in Michigan and then going to a place where you see just how effective it can be. Yeah.
2: It is it is a lot of fun when deer do react to calls or decoys or something like that in a positive way (laughs) versus hightailing. Does your does your level of aggressiveness differ though when you've got you know you know you just have five days to get it done in such and such place? I mean, do you approach things differently just from a timing perspective at all? Yeah,
0: and I I mean I do that here in Michigan too though because I know the window. Is so small, and the guys that have hunted with me or videoed with me, they always like to make fun of me because I will move a tree stand at any time. Does not matter if if it's the rut and I see more than two does go through one place, and I can't shoot that distance. It might be nine thirty in the morning. We're getting down, and we're moving tree stand <laughs> right then. And it, I I look at it is I can't let opportunities pass because there's not that many of them. So in Michigan the time period to kill a big buck is pretty small. So I'm not going to waste it. If I'm out of state and I've got four or five days, I'm not going to wait. I'm going to move that stand. And, you know, I kind of take pride in the fact that I can, I can get down and have another tree stand up and be hunting again in less than 15 minutes. You know, it's not that hard. If you think ahead, pick out the tree, make a plan, get down and move it. You know, you can do it quickly, really quietly. And, and it works out great. So, I'm always, when it, especially during the rut, I'm always aggressive. Now, I'll be a lot more aggressive with calling in a state like Kansas than Michigan, but I'm not going to let deer walk by that I can't shoot without moving if I feel like that's where a buck's going to show up.
2: Speaking of bucks in that type of situation, what about if you see a buck move somewhere? You know, I always, I always debate this. Okay, I saw him do this once. Do I move the next day or do I wait and see if he does it twice? What's your take on that?
0: It's kind of situational. Um, if, If it's a deer I've been hunting and I feel like I know him and his personality and I see him doing something and I think, ah, that's what he's been doing, then I'll move. If I see him doing it and I'm like, yeah, that was a fluke thing. I mean, it's all kind of like gut instinct. If it's a place I've never hunted and it's out of state, then I'm probably going to move because I don't know that that's not what they do all the time, right? you know, but here I, I generally feel like I get a pretty good idea of how the deer use the place and, you know, if I see him doing something that I don't think they normally would do, then I probably won't react, but sometimes I will if I feel like that's how he's been avoiding me. Now I've got him figured out. Yeah.
2: Makes sense. So yep. so we're coming up on time here, Tony. I, I've talked your ear off for long enough now, but I wanna I wanna ask you one final question. If there was mm-hmm. one like action item you could leave with our listeners, one change you would tell everyone to try to make before this season to be a little bit more successful in these types of situations we talked about. What would be that one action item you want everyone to take? <laughs>
0: For me, things changed when I, when I refused to settle. So if you haven't seen, you know, big bucks or got pictures of big bucks where you're hunting, you know, here in Michigan, um, you're probably not going to find one. There's a reason, especially if it's been a few years, there's a reason they're not there and you probably can't do anything about that. So you got to find something better. You know, if it's leasing or getting permission or trying to figure out how to buy a place, you know, that's what you've got to do. But if you haven't seen a truly big deer, um, you know, four-year-old, a five-year-old or whatever, in three or four years in the places that you hunt, and you didn't have two-year-olds that you saw last year, or three-year-olds, you're not going to have a four-year-old this year. So you got to, you know, kind of goes back to, it. you got to decide how serious you are about this. What is it that makes you happy as a hunter? And if, if shooting two-year-old deer and three-year-old deer makes you happy as a hunter, then do that. That's totally your choice, and I have no problem with that. But if you're a guy who says I really want to shoot these bigger bucks, then you got to do what it takes to find them. And if you haven't seen them in several years, and you don't have up and comers, you know, a, a big buck's not just going to magically grow out of the ground and suddenly be five years old. It just doesn't happen that way.
2: Yeah, I think that's spot on, and that's just the the honest truth of it. There's nothing fancy about it. It's just yep. simply, yep. You got to be hunting where they're at. Exactly. Yep. So Tony, for people who want to either follow what you're doing from a media standpoint or people that want to learn more about what you've got going on with whitetail properties, where can they go online to find that stuff?
0: So there's a couple places. I have, um, uh, a writer page on Facebook. So you can just search for my name and you'll either find my personal page or my writer page. It doesn't matter. It's kind of the same stuff. Um, of course, you can go to Whitehall Properties and go to the Michigan agents and see what you know. All of us are doing and what we've got going, and then I'm on Outdoor Life all the time too. So OutdoorLife.com, you can look me up there.
2: Perfect. Well, I'll make sure to link to all that stuff, and uh, I know I will be, and I bet a lot of our listeners will be following along. So hopefully, you'll have uh, another great season, Tony.
0: I'm going to try. That's for sure.
2: <laughs> me too. Well, thanks so much for taking the time to do this, and uh, good luck. All right, no problem, Mark. All right, well, there you go. I hope you enjoyed this conversation with Tony. I know I did, and I'm planning on putting some of these ideas into action in just a couple weeks when our season opens here in Michigan, and I cannot wait for that. So we're going to wrap things up here by thanking our partners who helped make this podcast possible. So big thank you to Sika Gear, Redneck Blinds, Huntera Maps, Yeti, Ozonics, Carbon Express, maven optics and the whitetail institute of north america go check these companies out give them a tweet or an email if you can and let them know that you appreciate them helping us make this show that would be pretty awesome and i certainly would appreciate it too and with all that said thank you all for joining us today and get pumped folks it's hunting season and with that being the case i would hope and expect and would be very disappointed if at this very moment you are not absolutely 100% stoked out of your mind and wired to hunt.